Where we talk about women from history, and mythology, and literature, and contemporaneity. My name is Alicia, and I'm Lauren, and we're here to bring you another fascinating figure this from week from history. This from time, history, right? this Excellent. time around. But before we do that, oh my god, oh my god, Lauren, oh we god. guess what? It's announcement time. Announcement time. Cue the song. Announcement time. It's it's announcement. So for those who have been paying attention the last couple of episodes, you would know that we had a competition on the go to leave us reviews on iTunes. And we had some reviews on we iTunes. Some. Some. <laughs> some reviews on iTunes. So for the some of you yeah. who reviewed, now's you. your time to win. It's your time to shine. So we've got... This is a black wicker wicker it's not wicker it's a straw cowboy hat <laughs> it's, not wicker. it's not even straw it's fake straw it's fake straw a cowboy fake straw hat cowboy hat can you this hear the rustling the, yeah that's a real genuine rustle it is it's a, a real... genuine rustling <laughs> genuine right. cowboy hat and, and now we're gonna pull out and we're shaking the name of the winner and it is Congratulations, Sophie. Well, we assume your name is Sophie. Oh, yeah, I think I'm pretty sure I know who you are, actually, because I'm quite sure we corresponded on Twitter. Oh, of course, because, Lauren, you do the corresponding on the Twitter. I do the Twitter mail. You do the Twitter mail. I do the real, actual, like, tangible mail. You do, This actually. is how we split up the jobs between yeah. us. Anyway, congratulations, Sophie. You will be getting a T-shirt. And a enamel pin. And, enamel. and. 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 Get out of town, Alicia. Get out of town. And enamel Can pin. Can it be that good? You know what? I might even throw in a sticker. <gasps> Just for the hell of Why it. Why not? So heartwarming reviews. I really loved reading them. We did. And so if you didn't enter the competition but you want to review anyway... Just know that you totally made our day. You they did. You fucking made my day. Every time I read them, I felt so happy. And we texted each other immediately <laughs> after. Like, another review. Where's another review? Did you see it? Oh, my God. Excellent. Thank you so much. But first of all, I would like to say, how are you, Lauren, now, <laughs> now that you're 30? Oh, shit. Yeah, that's true. I am 30. I turned 30 on Wednesday. And do you know what, Alicia? I have not gone a single day since then without wine and cheese that's what happens and it's been nearly a week yep so i think that's long enough to have established habit yes yes i feel really good about it oh i didn't ask how you are jesus (laughs) you i will answer for you she's well she's feeling impatient and she'd really like to talk about i'd really like to talk about charlotte cushman cushman last time we were in paris And we were in the early 1920s. Charlotte Saunders Cushman was born on the 23rd of July, 1816 in Boston, Massachusetts. That's a long time ago. She was the eldest of four children. She descended from one of the original Mayflower settlers. Precisely, yes. yes. So an early pilgrim from the Mayflower was one of her descendants. And, of course, the Mayflower was the first English ship to transport the Puritans. In I do believe that that is so. The 1600s. Do you know where I learned that information as a random aside? In a book? From the Brady Bunch episode about Thanksgiving. What? That is so random. <laughs> yeah. It's really random. When I was a small child. Yeah, the Pur- and we've met the Puritans before. Yeah. So we've been to Massachusetts before. We've met the Puritans they before. They burned some witches. Because they, they didn't burn-, burn them, they hanged them. They hanged some witches. Mm. Back in our Tichaber episode, we uh, talked all about that during the Salem Witch Trials. Yes. So we're starting off in the same part of America, but it's about 200 years later. Of course. So just so you know, to give us a little bit of a feel for what the Puritans have done thus far far in that 200 years, that will affect dear Charlotte because Mm -hmm. Charlotte is going to be 
an actress. An give, actress. I'm just giving that away now because this is important stuff to know about yeah. the theatre in Boston, Massachusetts, is that the Puritans had actually outlawed Well, theater. you know what? I was going to say, let me take one guess yeah. about what you mean about when you're talking about Puritans yep. in theatre, I'm going to say that they're not a fan. Yeah, yeah. But it was in the American Revolution of 1793 that Boston finally legalised theatre. And in fact, its first theatre house was erected at oh. the time. So it hadn't been a lot around for a super long time. No, so Charlotte, as I said, was born in 1816. So the theatre was starting out. It was coming to the fore. It had been there for a little while, but it was still fairly new. I'd also like to say, as a quick aside, in 1809, an actress called Eliza Poe happened to be performing there. Oh. And she happened to give birth to a son. Would you like to take a guess at who oh. Eliza Poe's son was? I'll give you one uh, guess. Ooh, uh, Edgar. Edgar. Of course. Edgar Allan Poe was indeed born in 1809 in Boston. Cool. So that was just a quick aside. We'll move on from that. So in terms of Charlotte, her father was a West Indian merchant, so they had a bit of money, but they didn't have their money for long, I'm afraid, because by the time that Charlotte was 13, her father had pretty much gone bankrupt. To top it all off, before she was 13, he had also died. Oh. So debt was never settled and it was basically left with... Her, her mother and her three siblings. But luckily, Charlotte, as the eldest child, was already showing a little bit of promise. She had a talent as a contralto singer. Mm-hmm. So it was in 1834 that a Scottish opera singer called Mrs. Joseph Wood, who was also known as Marianne Payton, she's a very interesting woman mm. and may one day be a deviant woman, but mm. we're just going to brush mm. over her for today right. she heard the young cushman singing and she recommended her to become a pupil of mr james g mader who was a ladies musical director a and a ladies a ladies musical director and it was under his instruction that she made her first appearance in a proper opera at the tremont theater in boston and she appeared in the marriage of figaro with great Success. Great success. Great success. It's better than medium success. So she's off to a good start mm. as a singer, bringing in a little bit of cash for the family. All's going well. All's going so well that she heads on down to New Orleans. Oh. Where she's going to capitalise on her abilities. Yeah. And start to grow her name as an opera singer. However, she arrives in New Orleans. Uh-huh. And her voice... Hey. Oh, no. Just... It just stops? Just fucks off on oh, her. shit. Because... It had been strained by the soprano parts that had oh, been assigned right. to her. Right, so she's a contralto she's and a she contralto, has which, been given, as we said, is low. The lower soprano is high. Yeah. And her voice is like, nope. What it basically means is that she can't be an opera singer no. anymore. So her very early career into the world of opera foiled. Cut short. She's still really young at this point, isn't she? She sure is. So you know what? Don't worry about it. It's fine. She's okay. Because what's going to happen is this is going to catapult her into the part of her career that actually matters. Okay, good. <laughs> As a stage actress. As a stage actress. An actress of the stage. At the age of 18, she steps out on the stage as Lady Macbeth, and this is where her story really begins. So she played Lady Macbeth, even at this young age, mm. tender age of 18, she came out in a completely different way to how Lady Macbeth had been oh, played. Oh, really? Before. Customary sort of performances of the time were a little bit more reserved and ladylike, mm. but Charlotte Cushman came mm. out as energetic and powerful right. and fierce. Because really, Lady Macbeth, in my imagination, I mean, she's calculating, calculating, mm-hmm. ambitious. She's the one who really has power yeah. over Macbeth. Yeah. Yeah, so Cushman played her in this very mm. sort of forceful and fierce and powerful fashion. Based on this performance, she receives a three-year contract oh. with the Bowery Theatre in New York. Was she talent-scouted? She was basically talent-scouted, yeah. So she heads off to New York City and she's going to the Bowery Theatre and she's been employed as what was known as a walking lady. What? A walking lady. A walking lady. lady. A walking lady. As opposed to a crawling lady (laughs) or a running lady or a standing still lady or a lying down lady. They're the best ladies. Yeah, lying lying down down ladies. ladies. Yeah, I love them. They're great. So let me just contextualize (laughs) what a walking lady is. Please do. So a walking lady, and you're going to be not at all surprised to learn, (laughs) is basically someone 
He plays a variety of walk-on parts. Walk-on parts. Yes. Basically employed in an ensemble to do whatever needs to be done. And this was actually quite a common sort of role for actresses to get because there weren't really many leading lady Mm. parts that you could just walk into. Theatre was still very much a man's game. I mean, Lady Macbeth would probably be one of the chunkiest roles you'd get as a woman. Yeah. And in terms of actually finding continual employment in Mm. the theatre, a walking lady was one of the best things that you could hope for because it meant that you would have continual employment doing something or other. Actually, writing a little later in the century, another American actress, another possible deviant woman, or mm. so many deviant women from this time, called Olive Logan, uh, was actually Olive quite... Logan. Yeah, good name, hey. Great yeah, name. Said that a woman who has not the ability enough to rank as a passable walking lady in a good theatre on a salary of $25 a week can strip herself almost naked and be thus qualified to go upon the stage of two-thirds of our theatres at a salary of $100 and upwards. Ooh. So this also suggests that... The theatre for women was still seen as a very unsavoury well, sort of thing. Yeah, it's next step up from... Prostitution. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So being an actual sort of respectable actress was not really... Not I mean, really being an actress wasn't a respectable thing. No, that leap from the world of opera to the world of the theatre would have been... Yes, it's the logical step to take. But it's not the same thing in terms of the prospects of your career, your respectability. Mm -hmm. I imagine that her family, if you're a middle class, upper class, 19th century lady and you say to your your family, I'm going to join the opera. They'd be like, oh, wonderful, lovely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, have some Mm -hmm. money, go join the opera. But if you say, I want to go join the theatre, they'd be like... Uh, uh, no. no, I want to be no, an actress. Thank you. Uh, uh. you stay home, young yeah, lady. Yeah, so you married basically... to Todd next door. Yeah, Todd. Todd. <laughs> Todd next door. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, because I mean, it was basically one step up from being a stripper, yeah. or being a prostitute. And I, it wasn't just what you did on stage that was considered unseemly. It was also the entire sort of world around mm. theatre that was and considered unseemly. I think unseemly. this is the thing that is the controversial part about theatre is theatre is so particularly of the time it's so associated with the world of vice and with all kinds of sundry sins and you know Mm -hmm. it's the reason I imagine that a lot of people were attracted to the theatre yeah well because the theatre had been a place mainly for men Mm. and prostitutes and for a while women couldn't even enter theatres without a male escort to prove that they weren't a prostitute yeah you had to turn up with a man on your arm to prove that you could even go into the theater and that you weren't there just to solicit yeah your client for the night and so theater was pretty unappealing to middle class women as well because it Mm. wasn't considered you know socially acceptable to go along to the theater but it was actually this point in time where uh some people sat around changing Mm. the ideas around what theater was and some of the rules that were put out were things like no drinking was allowed anymore mm. in the theatres, so you couldn't buy alcohol anymore, oh, which was this idea goodness. that that would stop you from being a little bit unseemly. Mm. Also that prostitutes weren't allowed to come in, so, you know, those women were barred from here on in. That seems unfair. It's a bit unfair. It's quite unfair. <laughs> but this was in the idea of cleaning up the yeah. theatres. And other things were introduced as well, like specific seating for women that was separate mm. to men. So this opened the doors for middle-class women to start coming along to the theatre unaccompanied by men. Yeah, this is kind of like in like ancient Greece where women weren't allowed to visit the theatre at all. I mean, I think they were allowed to go to tragedies, but they certainly weren't allowed to go to comedies. Mm. And then, of course, in Shakespeare's time, women weren't allowed on stage. Mm. Like, women have been barred from the theatre forever. Yeah, so this was kind of starting to change um, what roles women could play when it came to the theatre, both on stage and as audience yeah. participants as well. So this is kind of a little bit like last week with the art world where we yeah. saw the rise of the kind of arts and craft movement starting to enable women to participate more and that changed the way that galleries worked and that allowed more women into the professional side yeah. because more women were visiting yeah. galleries. And because women were the ones, like middle-class women, were the ones who had spare time on their hands to go to the theatre. Mm. So when I think it was P.T. Barnum of Barnum and Bailey Circuses was mm-hmm. one of the sort of the forerunners of this, 
I'm going slightly off topic here and I'm just running off my own knowledge, which may be incorrect, (laughs) but who actually started to see middle-class women as an audience as a source of income and revenue that wasn't being tapped into. Yeah, so they're like doing their market research exactly. and figuring out their demographic. Precisely, because they're like, hey, wait a minute, there are all of these women with a bit of money who yeah. have nothing to do with their time. Yeah, because all their children are at boarding exactly. school. Exactly. <laughs> but they are not allowed into our theatres. We're wasting a yeah. huge demographic here. Yeah. So in starting to clean up the theatres so that middle-class women could come in, and mainly this started sort of like matinee shows. Yeah, This yeah, is kind yeah. of where this idea came from because evening shows are still going to be a bit unseemly for a woman on her own to come to an evening show. But you could come unescorted to a, to a, day. a daytime mm. matinee show, sit in your women's only area, and that's perfectly respectable a, to do. Yeah. This is where this kind of idea of tapping into this market of middle-class women really began, mm. and this is going to become really, really handy for Charlotte Cushman. This audience demographic is going to be oh, yeah. super excellent uh-huh. for her. Okay, you're doing a lot of, a lot a of hand finger gesticulating. Gestures. Right. But all that said... Cushman has her three-year contract, as I mentioned before, with the Bowery Theatre. Yeah. The Bowery Theatre is run by a chap called Thomas Hamblin. He was the manager at the time. And, look, to be honest, he wasn't really into high-class theatre. Oh. He was into animal acts, uh, blackface minstrel acts, uh, melodrama. He was into the kind of, like, the lowbrow entertainment. Yeah. And this is where she's got her star. Yeah, so not that salubrious for her Mm. to begin with, but fortunately, quite soon after, she gets this contract to go to New York and has started to make friends with a few interesting people, people that can help her out. Super handily, there's the Great Fire. Oh. So there are about three Great Fires. I was going to say, I was like... Oh, oh, wait, Yeah, what? I don't know yeah. this one. There's about three major fires during the 18th and 19th century in New York City. And this particular fire in 1835 burnt the Bowery Theatre down. Oh, no. Burnt down the wardrobe department. And I think Thomas Hamblin like, claimed something like $5,000 worth of wardrobe in insurance recompense, which was enormous yeah, at the time. Yeah, that's a huge amount of money a at the time. huge amount of money at the time. And the Bowery Theatre... Burnt down like four times in 17 years. Really? Yeah. And did he keep claiming wardrobe insurance? I'm not entirely sure. Is this what you're suggesting? There were some rumors of arson that that may have been the case, but he kept rebuilding. (laughs) He's got some tenacity. He's got some tenacity. That go get him fire (laughs) attitude. Much, much, much later. It wasn't until 1929 that uh, the Bowery Theatre actually burnt down for the very last time and was destroyed for good. You know what? Sentences don't often begin with, luckily, there was a great fire. So where does the great fire take her? Yeah, so it is lucky because it means that she's released from her contract Mm. at the Bowery Theatre. And she takes up an engagement in Albany, which is still in New York. I know, but Albany? (laughs) You sound so disappointed about that. Oh, from New York. New York, New York to Albany, New York. When does she get to England? Not yet. Oh, slow down. So, she needs to earn a bit of cash, as we've been mentioning, to help out her family. And so, because things have been a little bit rocky on the stage, she decides that she's going to try a hand at writing as well, just to hedge her bets. Okay. And one of the friendships that she's made since moving to New York is with a fellow called E. Burke Fisher, who worked at The New Yorker, and he helped her to get her first story published. And she published a story called, except from my journal, The Actress... Oh. In Goody's Lady Book. And that was a popular women's magazine yeah. at the time. And Be like the Women's Day? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And so the story that uh, she wrote was fiction. Mm-hmm. But it's pretty autobiographical, okay. thinly veiled fiction. because <laughs> Which no one does that. No one does that. <laughs> because it's actually about the daughter of a wealthy merchant. Oh, what? Who goes bankrupt. What? She so she turns to the stage to support what? herself and her family. Oh, my God. What a surprise semi-autobiographical <laughs> story. So she wrote poems and stories and she sort of thought that this might be a fallback career if the whole acting business mm. didn't go her way. Do you get paid enough money per short story to make a living back then? I don't think you do. So nothing's changed? As, as a woman, yeah, no, nothing's changed. <laughs> as a woman, you don't get paid a hell of a lot to do, do anything. anything. That's true. But she actually got 
quite good reviews for her writing. And it was at a performance in Albany, one of her particular performances, where before the performance began, she actually came out and read out a poem that she had written in honour of the firefighters who had fought the blaze at the Bowery Theatre. And she read Charlotte? Yeah, I know. Isn't that nice? And she read the poem out and it received excellent reviews. And she began to receive a little bit of fame Excellent. as a writer and a poet as well. God damn it. So she started publishing some stories and she was actually also accused. It was, it was never proved, but she was also accused of writing some bad reviews for other actresses. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I think that's kind of great. That's funny. So she was writing <laughs> reviews for other plays and just like talking down other oh, actresses. Like, yeah, miss... Yes, Miss, uh, Miss Veronica was a bit shit. She wasn't was a she? bit oh. shit. If only <laughs> Charlotte Cushman had played that role. But she denied those rumors, and it was never proven. Okay. But so she she has started to sort of really settle in as an actress now, and she's really gained a lot of interest in the way that she plays roles because she's also quite tall and robust and big for a woman of the time. And not a pretty little ingenue mm. that, you know, you want to go along and see on yep. stage. And she's quite powerful. And a, and a lot of sort of quotes from the time say that she's quite manly in right. her presentation on stage. And she did play a lot of men's roles as well, which was not uncommon. I was just going to ask, is that normal? It's not uncommon at the time. So there were things called breaches roles, right, which was basically mm. women in breaches. Oh. So it was not uncommon for women to actually get on stage and play the roles of men. Not just Peter Pan. Not just Peter Pan in tights. <laughs> um, so she was very good at these roles that she that she took on as well. Yeah, right. I don't know what it's like to be the tallest in your class. Oh, yeah, you wouldn't have a, a clue, bit. would you? What it's like Maybe to be a big Amazon. Get all the man roles in your school productions. <laughs> oh, Lauren. Yeah. Oh, well, you and Charlotte Cushman, you know. You I did play far more male roles in my youth oh. than female roles. You know, you know what it's like. You know what it's like to be typecast. <laughs> yep. Well, fortunately for you, you're a very attractive lady. Was- and fortunately for you, novelist Henry James. Never wrote Uh-oh. anything scathing about oh, what you. Did Henry James write about Charlotte Cushman. So she wasn't considered particularly attractive, and Henry James claimed that she was markedly destitute of beauty or of the feminine attractive. Oh no! Just oh, a bit Henry harsh. James, he was a horror writer. So. <laughs> he was a bit of an a-hole. But we'll come back to Henry James uh, a bit later okay. as well, because he's also got some other interesting asides that fit into the story. Yeah, okay. Of Charlotte Cushman. Yeah, so that wasn't a particularly nice thing for him to say, but she did play, like, female roles as well, of course. So, she, yeah, she was very famous, as we said, for her performance of Lady Macbeth, but she was also very famous for her performance of Queen Catherine in Henry VIII as well, and also for her performance of Meg Merrilies, the gypsy character in Guy Mannering. I've seen a picture of her in that role. Yeah. great. Yes, and so she was an absolute hit in the role and another American actress called Mary Anderson wrote that Cushman stood like one great withered tree her arms stretched out her white locks flying her eyes blazing under their shaggy brows shaggy brows I know very evocative so she was incredibly flexible I have shaggy brows at the moment do you do some plucking (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or maybe you could just play Meg Merrilies in a production of Guy Mannering. Yeah, why not? Yeah. So she went to Albany and she was hired by the Park Theatre as a walking lady again. And that's where she took up that particular role as Meg Merrilies, which basically kind of skyrocketed her to fame. It was an absolute hit for her. But in about 1839, remember how we mentioned she had some siblings? Yes. So she had a younger sister called Susan. And in hopes that maybe as a good way of Susan getting a bit of a fortune of her own, one of um, their deceased father's friends had said that, you know, he was very sick, he was on his deathbed, Mm -hmm. and he had kindly offered to marry Susan so that Susan could inherit his money when he died. That's kind of him. Very kind of him. It seems so kind because he's like, look, I'm going to die. I don't have a wife. If I marry you, you can get the money. That seems super, super kind, right? Uh, Susan's 14, just so we know, right? So everybody agrees to this because they think that that's going to end up with Susan with some cash in pocket. He's like, but, you know, we obviously have to get married before I die. So they get married. Miraculous 
recovering. He fucking doesn't die, does he? Miraculous recovery. 14-year-old Susan ends up with old man. So. That's just, oh, no. Yeah, so she gets married to Nelson Merriman, who has. Nelson. who's had his miraculous recovery. And then she gets pregnant. Oh, no. And then. That's disgusting. Oh, I'm so sorry, Susan. He deserts her. (gasps) He runs off. What a. Isn't that horrendous? Isn't that a horrendous story? What the fuck? So he like feigns, oh, I'm dying on my deathbed. You can have my money. Just so he can get laid? So then he marries this poor 14-year-old girl, impregnates her, and pisses off. Oh, no. Is that full on? It's so horrible. It's horrible. It's absolutely atrocious. So Charlotte being, you know, the wonderful that sister that she is, she takes Susan in and she basically, so Susan gives birth to a son called Ned, takes Susan and, and Ned in and basically kind of adopts Ned and suggests that Susan should also pursue acting and together they become an absolute sensation in Romeo and Juliet. Oh, yeah, I heard about this. Yeah. They, one of them played Romeo yeah. and the other played Juliet. So Cushman plays Romeo and Susan plays Juliet. And they're a smash hit sensation. That's amazing. Yeah. And because, as you mentioned, sort of Cushman had that sort of tall, towering physique, she was incredibly convincing in her male roles. And Mm. Susan was demure and petite and little. And so she was very convincing as Juliet. And so playing opposite each other, they were incredibly, incredibly successful. And I guess they probably, like, funnily would have had great chemistry on stage because they would have not chemistry, but I mean, <laughs> just they are face of like familiar. they're like familiar with it. You know, they have an, in, they would have an intimacy on stage. You yes. know, it's not like you're playing romantic scenes opposite a, not, a complete the, not that you wouldn't be a stranger because you work together, but it's different playing opposite somebody who is your sister. There's a totally different kind of intimacy. Yeah. I think, and it's really, interesting actually like I suppose that kind of like the tenderness that would have yeah, come through that's what I'm t- that's and, what I'm talking yeah. about and I think it's like they reprised the role many many times mm. and it was incredibly powerful and successful so yeah. good on them that worked out nicely so then what happens is uh, Charlotte is pretty well aware of the fact that her celebrity is growing right mm-hmm. she's becoming a bit well known and, and look she's, she's a smart girl she knows that celebrity is a thing. Mm. And you should sort of market yourself. You, know? mm-hmm. you should really give yourself some, some proper marketing to frame who you are in the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And because for Charlotte, as we will come to see, who she is in her private life mm. is really quite important. So she commissions herself a portrait by a renowned portrait artist called Tol- Thomas Sully. And she pretty quickly starts up a friendship with uh, Sully's daughter, Rosalie, mm. also an artist. And they start to hang out a lot. Charlotte spends a lot of time at the Sully's house. They become bosom buddies. They become really good friends. Yeah. They have sleepovers oh, and stuff. Fun sleepovers. In the bed together. Oh, because you can. Cuddles. Having cuddles. Special cuddles. <laughs> um, special cuddles. And as you probably guessed, they mm. have begun What's the first sort of documented lesbian relationship in Charlotte's life? Right. Yeah. So So how old is Charlotte by this point? She's roughly 27. Okay. Yeah. Roughly. Roughly. Roughly 27. (laughs) (laughs) Roughly 27, two months and three days old. Uh, No, that's a lie. So, yeah, she begins her relationship with with Rosalie. And she kept a lot of diaries, Charlotte Cushman, a hell of a lot of diaries. And in one of her diaries, there's sort of a cryptic note that she wrote in July of 1844. And this is just before an important event in her life. And she wrote a little cryptic note in her diary that was, ah, Saturday, July 6th, married. Married. And it was the same day that she'd given Rosalie a gift of a ring. Oh. So there's a suggestion here that they've had their own private marriage. Oh, my God, that's really beautiful. Together. And um, oh, I feel I feel all lovely and nice in my chest. <laughs> I'm just yeah. thinking about them having a nice little secret. Oh, well, a secret, yeah, a secret dalliance and one that they secret felt tender that they love, um, love affair. Yeah, that they wanted to love sort of confirm in a very formal way, in the most formal way that they could yeah. at the time. 
And we can speculate that the reason they wanted to formalise their love was because this was shortly before Cushman did what all great actresses and Shakespearean actresses of the time were going to do. Yes. Uh, She's going to move to London. She's going to move to London. Is she going to take Rizzy with her? No, she's not. Oh. Sad. Sad times. Yeah. Yeah, because, of course, if you're a Shakespearean actress, you need to prove yourself on the English mm. stage, right? So you, you need, need to play to go, the Globe. Yeah, you need you're to go not back to the... Shakespearean actor or actress if you haven't played the Globe. Yeah, you have to go back to the home place of the Bard. So she set sail for England. Rosalie left mm. behind. And, again, she kept her diaries while she was on her trip to England. And I've got a little quote from one of her diaries while she was sailing across the seas... On her voyage mm-hmm. to England, she's 28 yep. at this stage, and she wrote, I am impatient and fear I shall not be successful abroad. If not, I am worse off at home than if I had never gone. However, time will show all. At all events, it cannot deprive me of her love, and I should care for nothing else. Aww. Aww. So quite Aww. a lot of love between the two. Yeah. Yeah. But... Cushman needn't have worried about her success because she basically turns up in England and she's a hit. Really? Yeah. So was there any kind of cultural prejudice about American actresses in England or were they really special and amazing? I'm guessing it's one or the other. that They'd either be scorned as, ugh, Americans, what do they know about the theatre? Or it would be like, oh, Americans, they're so exotic. Well, the thing about Cushman that worked for her was that because of Cushman's physique and powerful presence, it worked in her favour because what she actually did was she sort of confirmed something about English femininity back Mm. to the English Mm. that they found novel and strange and weird, but they liked it because she was like robust American woman on stage, it made them feel better about petite, demure English femininity. That's really interesting. So there's something there about her Americanness. Yeah, that allows her to also be big and bold and loud and... Yeah, exactly. Not typically pretty. That's right. All these brash sort of things that weren't considered English qualities were okay in her because it was a part of her Americanness. Yeah, because it is, I feel like even back then it would be unusual to reach the level of career success that Charlotte did without physical beauty going along with it because as much as it sucks, it is a thing. They go hand in hand. Fame and beauty go hand in hand. Yeah. And because, as I was mentioning before about the women who played roles of men, like women in breeches, the Mm. breeches roles, a lot of those roles weren't because it was this idea that women, you know, were so excellent as actresses that they could play men's roles. A lot of theories are that women in breeches was also a titillation for men because they could come onto the theatre and see a woman in tights. Yeah, okay. And it was like getting to see her legs. the shape of her legs. Exactly. Getting to see the shape of a woman's legs. So gross. Rather than you've come along to see a woman Mm. who's so great at acting that you're... she can play men's roles. Exactly, yeah. So it's so much to do, as it is still today, Mm -hmm. with physical beauty. Yeah. And here in England, that didn't matter. Yeah, it worked for her that she was, yeah, quite manly mm. and lacking in the feminine attractive. Yeah. As Henry James <laughs> has Henry James so eloquently put it. He did. So what else happens at this stage, though, that we should say is that Rosalie's a long way away. Yes. She's I imagine fidelity is maybe not going to be on the forefront of her mind yeah well charlotte's in a new world I think you've done that before, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. With its lot. own seedy underground theatre scene. That's right. I mean, have you read Tipping the Velvet? Uh, I haven't, but I've seen the, I have seen the miniseries. Yeah. Uh, well, we yeah, all know what goes know. on in the London theatre in the Victorian times. We do. And so Charlotte is- begins to tip the velvet <laughs> elsewhere. Oh, no. She finds some new interests abroad. Some Poor old Rosalie. And she becomes very close at this stage to a woman called Anne Hampton Brewster, 
who was basically America's first female foreign correspondent. Oh, fantastic. She's a journalist. So she finds an expat community here Mm. already of um, American expats. And this is pretty much straight off the boat. Like, as soon as she arrives, she gets into this social scene. Mm. And so she becomes very close with Anne. But quite quickly, social pressure from Brewster's family and Brewster's brother already means that they have to part. So she's already kind of had a little bit of dalliance and found that it's not mm. as easy as she hoped it might be. You know, there's still yeah. social a lot of, pressures, still family, a lot of social pressures dis- there. But she continues to have success in England as an actress, and she can, she also travels to Edinburgh and to Ireland, and she plays roles like Rosalind in Twelfth mm. Night, which makes sense. It makes so much makes sense. So much sense. She reprises Lady Macbeth. She plays Queen Catherine, as uh, I mentioned before, yeah. in Henry the Eighth. Yeah. And so she is really taken on board on the English stage. And this is a real sign of your uh, success. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're successful in England, then you've you've made made it. it. Yeah. There was also an American actor called Edwin Forrest, who Charlotte had a bit to do with in America before she left. And he was very famous for being very, very muscular. He was a big, big man, right? Big, powerful man. I was. Is he like one of those old Victorian like muscle strong men, men? Strong men with their iron barbells and their leopard <laughs> yeah, and their skin moustache. and their moustaches and yeah, the leotards. Not quite, but almost. Okay. And he did play in Spartacus and oh, those sorts of like. So yeah. he was a very manly man. Actually, mm. if you uh, the look, Russell Crowe of yeah. So he's a big beefy actor, mm. and at one stage Cushman is cast to play Lady Macbeth to his Macbeth, mm-hmm. and he sort of complained about her. He didn't like her because she was too powerful. Not, not, not feminine enough. Yeah, too powerful, mm. too forceful. But the pairing was wonderful because the other thing as well was that because of Cushman's height and size, quite often she towered over her co-stars. Oh. So a lot of the time the Macbeths that she played across were actually physically smaller. Were physically smaller. That's really interesting in the Macbeth-Lady Macbeth dynamic. Exactly. Yeah. And it makes it such an interesting thing to think about how important it was that actresses have that demure, petite yeah. sort of physique so that they don't overshadow, literally don't literally, overshadow yeah. their male counterparts. Yeah, that's why they always put Tom Cruise on a box. It's <laughs> precisely the same reason. Yeah. It's precisely the same thing. <laughs> Yeah, so Forrest also moved to England to prove himself as a proper actor. Yeah. And so they met again in England and also had to play against each other. And really interestingly enough as well, at times, because as we mentioned, Cushman was often cast in male roles, Forrest... And Cushman often were competing for the same, for the same roles. Parts. That audition for the same part. I find it really amazing. amazing? I find it really amazing that she played male lead roles in serious male lead roles that they would otherwise cast someone like Edwin Forrest in. Because that's not just like, hey, we're going to do this really fun kitsch female version of The Tempest, right? Maybe I played Prospero once upon a time in a in an all female (laughs) production of The Tempest, right? But it's not like this oh, wouldn't this be a really cool, interesting feminist statement? There's not enough roles for women. But she was actually just literally taken seriously seriously auditioning alongside male actors. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. And I think that's, yeah, that's a really, I think it's so wonderful to think that, you know, she actually ended up becoming one of Edwin's kind of rivals for these parts. I just think that's brilliant. So at the same time that she's here, she's also becoming acquainted with loads of female artists and journalists, novelists, painters, expats. Yeah. And it's here as well that she meets Matilda Hayes. Yes. Now, Matilda Hayes was a writer and an actress as well. And she also translated a lot of George Sand's novels ah. from the French. Well, I say she's the cherry to Agnes Goodsir as... As Matilda is as Matilda to, Charlotte. Is to Charlotte. She is the cherry to her Matilda. Excellent. Is that how you would I think place that's that? how it goes. Yeah. Something. You yeah. Know what I She's mean. very similar to the cherry to her Matilda. The cherry to her. <laughs> Will you be the cherry I'm, to my Matilda? I'm pretty sure we can make a saying oh out of God. that. <laughs> Will you Do be? I, will you be the cherry to my Matilda? <laughs> <laughs> that's hot. I that's like great. it. So she, yeah. So she strikes up with Matilda and they actually begin a relationship that's pretty much on again, off again for the next best part of ne- the next 10 years. Yeah. 
And they start to gain a bit of notoriety as a couple. Mm. And they also do this cute thing where they dress the same. Oh, yay. <laughs> I love couples that dress the yeah, same. I like, I, I love, hate them. Yeah. I like, yeah. I, I admire them so much, but I also really want to make fun of them. Yeah. But I would never actually make fun of them. No, I think in, in terms of Matilda and Charlotte, it's cool that they started to yeah. dress the same. I think that's perfectly fine. <laughs> and in fact, it was Elizabeth Browning. Oh. Famous poet. Famous poet and spiritualist. Why did I say poet? Poet. It's <laughs> like the female poet is a poet. She actually wrote of them that, and I quote, I understand that she, meaning Cushman, and Miss Hayes have made vows of celibacy and of eternal attachment to each other. They live together, dress alike. It is a female marriage. <gasps> okay. So they, This is amazing. Yeah. Elizabeth Barrett Browning knew that. amazing. So were they out? Yeah. So they were out. That's fantastic. They were a known couple. And here we are, 150-ish. Do the maths, Lauren. Do the maths. I don't know what year this is. This is like 1845. Matilda was often also referred to as Max or Matthew. So did they dress in men's clothing? as well yeah they did so most of the photos that you'll see of them they're in women's clothing Mm. but in their own sort of society yeah they would often wear men's clothing that matched yeah which is pretty great that's great pretty adorable that's amazing it's like those couples that wear like the same tracksuit yes you know like matching yeah but as this relationship was blossoming Charlotte received word that Rosalie, at the tender age of 29, had died. Oh, Rosalie. Yeah, and um, I'm not entirely sure what Rosalie died of. I think speculation is she had a fever, but there's also speculation that she had a broken heart because she had heard about Cushman. (gasps) That was so famous word made it all the way back. Yeah, she'd heard about Cushman's, Charlotte's new relationships with other women and that she'd moved on from her. Poor old Rosalie never got over it. And, yeah. And so... Oh, my God. Her poor little heart. Her poor little heart. My tiny heart is broken. Oh. When news of Rosalie's death reached Charlotte in London, she had uh, a bit of a breakdown. Mm. And she cancelled mm. some shows. And she went on a rest cure. Yeah. Now, part of this may be because she also felt, felt very guilty. Yeah. I was... I suspect that's probably part of it. Yes. That she blamed herself a little bit for mm. um, Rosalie's death. Even though, as I say, there's no, don't think there's really any documented evidence of what Rosalie died of. But, um, you know, Charlotte had never gone back to her Mm. and she'd heard all about her new Mm. loves. So speculation. Can one actually die of a broken heart? Can it be done? I think that you can die of other related Related depressive episodes and other things. Yes. But with the help, I assume, I'm making this bit up, of Matilda. She recovered mm. from the shock and the loss of Rosalie and she went on to return to the stage. Eventually. Eventually. Cool. So she also returned to the stage in the United States. Oh. So she went back in 1849 to tour and perform in the United States and also at this point, because she had made her name in England, she was able to demand pay that was equal to the most prominent of the male actors oh. in America. Whoa. Now that is impressive. Yeah. Because still today, leading ladies don't get paid equal to what leading men get paid. You are Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, that's right. So to think that in 1849. She's breaking so many barriers that are massive things right now. She is spiritually marrying other women and she is breaking glass. Pay gap ceilings. Exactly. These are real pressing issues 120 years later. Yeah, I know. And she was doing it then, man. Getting it done. Good job, Charlotte. And she had always, this is an interesting thing as well, because she started off with so little and then started to earn so very, very much, she had from the very beginning already been planning her retirement. Right. So she was already saving her money. Mm -hmm. She was a smart lady. She's business acumen. It's like how she was marketing herself. Exactly. She's got the business smarts. So she'd already decided by 1852 that she was going to retire. 
She's wow. 36. She's yeah. 36. And she's like, you know I'm what? Done. I'm done. I've got my monies. I'm just going to retire. I'm out. So this is also a little bit of an Australian reference, solely for our Australian fans <laughs> out there. She does a bit of a John Farnham. <laughs> she has multiple retirements. She's the voice. But... In yeah, 1852, she decides this is the first time she's going does to Does she retire. do massive farewell tours every she time? She fucking does. <laughs> she does huge farewell tours. So by this time, she already owned a home in London and she was wintering in Rome with Matilda mm. and they were spending a lot of their time there together. And Matilda had given up acting by this stage as well and was pretty much just devoted to her time with Charlotte because Charlotte was reigning in the big yeah. bucks. So after this brief tour in the US, she decides she's going to retire and she takes up residence with Matilda in Rome. And they have predominantly American expat community. Yeah, there's a scene there as well, isn't there? Yeah. So last time around, we were talking about Paris as the the lesbian mm, mecca of the the, big expat artistic community. Yep. Very lesbian friendly. Yep. Now we have that. In, in Rome. Rome. The same thing happening in Rome, particularly with the American expat community of sculptors, mm. a lot of sculptors, mm. journalists, writers, novelists, sculptor Edmonia Lewis. Let's mm. remember her. Yes. Everyone. Edmonia Lewis. Name drop. Remember that. <laughs> Journalist Grace Greenwood and another sculptor as well named Harriet Hosmer. Mm-hmm. What a great name. Harriet Hosmer. So speaking of Harriet, Matilda. Oh. Oh. Matilda starts a up a little thing with oh. Harriet mm. and leaves Charlotte oh dear. for Harriet. And they've been together for 10 years? Yeah. Ish? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, because this is in about 1854-ish. Right. So they've been together for about 10 years. And she's a sculptor, did you say? Yeah, now she's off with Harriet, who's a sculptor. Well, she knows how to use her hands. She does. <laughs> she knows what to do with her fingers. <laughs> but this kind of sets off, and because it's such a tight-knit, community here as well it sets off basically just like an endless stream of sort of jealous you can imagine right this is like it's a small scene you all have to go to the same party yeah yeah like just imagine going to these parties and knowing being like everyone would be like everyone's hooking up with each other everyone's like have you invited harriet oh my god oh fuck because i invited charlotte she i invited charlotte oh Oh my god you can imagine how like awkward this would be for everybody so much like texting everyone i know just don't just don't say anything to don't Harriet. say anything just please lots of emojis of like shock face yeah actually it'd be more like sending off little tiny notes to each other yeah yeah that they would and then getting the kitchen boy to run them to yeah each exactly other's houses. yeah and they would have drawn like they would have drawn <laughs> little, like, little smiley face emojis on it that they'd be sending oh my, god, oh my god did you hear anyway yeah so this was kind of quite an unfortunate scene to occur but matilda eventually goes back to Charlotte. All right. The things with Matilda and Harriet don't last forever, and Matilda comes crawling back to oh, Charlotte. But please take me back. Yeah, exactly. I never knew what I had until I lost it. But she comes back to her, but I guess, you know, things aren't going to be the same. Has Charlotte also moved on? Well, Does so, she hook up with some young ladies at a party? So also what happens... Is yes. around about the same time another American sculptor. It's all the fucking American sculptors, man. It's the hands. It's the hands. I'm They're, telling you. Yeah, you're so right. Another American sculptor called Emma Stebbins has moved to Rome with a sponsorship of her brother. And bizarrely enough, she moves in with Harriet and uh, directly <laughs> oh into God. the lesbian fray. Oh, my God. Call it a fray. Um, And she quickly becomes involved with Charlotte. Oh, my God. It must be such a small scene. A very small scene. very incestuous scene. Uh, There's a a bit of a famous story, and I don't know if it's true or not, but the story goes that one night Matilda sort of walked in on Charlotte while she was sitting at the desk. Oh, yeah. Scribbling out an emoji note. Yeah, writing writing a love letter. Yeah, writing a... Pouring her heart out. Yeah. And Matilda walks in on her and she suspects that that's what she's doing. Yeah. She demands to see the note. Yeah. But Charlotte is like, it's no. not. She's like, no, you can't. You can't see this. Yeah. And she's this like, private. Yeah. And she's like, but it's not, it's not to her. And she's like, well, if it's not to her, why then can't you why show can't? me? I see it. Yeah. And she's logic. like, well, because don't you just trust me? And she's like, no. And it escalates. Escalates. And apparently Matilda chases Charlotte around the house. Oh my God. Like smashing oh at her. God. And punching at her with her fists. Oh, my God. It's not good. That's 
It's like abuse. That's the real, yeah. Yeah. Like she actually attacks her. It's a proper fight. It's a proper fight. It explodes. Oh, my goodness. And as you could probably imagine, that is Is the the end end? of the relationship. That makes sense. That's done. That is definitely a deal breaker. Yeah. Gone too far. You've gone too far now, Matilda. And so Matilda moves out. But. She sues Charlotte. Sues her? She sues Charlotte because she says that she sacrificed her own career. <gasps> oh, my God. She, because she order, did. Because she, she, she did. did. She did. She sacrificed her own career in order to support Charlotte's career. And so, therefore, she is due some of oh what Charlotte God. has. Matilda, businesswoman. Yeah. And that's like a, what couples do today. It is. So it's very kind it of modern to think yeah. that, you know, this couple broke up and she was like, well, hey, I and, deserve half of what you, know, you have. And that is such a, a contemporary thing as well. Like I imagine that when a man and a woman divorced back then, the wife doesn't say like, I sacrificed my career yeah, for you. That's right. That's not a thing. Yeah. So this is like a, a such a different kind of equal relationship that she's even able to do that. Was well, it so successful? In the end, Charlotte just pays her out. Okay. But – it's not stipulated for how much. So yeah. she gives her some unknown amount of Alimony. money. And it's basically just so she'll shut up and go away. Oh, my God. Yeah. But so she, Matilda gets money out of it, which is actually quite amazing. Yeah. And then they basically part company for good. No more matching so that's it. jackets. No more matching jackets. What happens is very shortly after the breakup, Emma moves on in. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Emma moves Out on with in. the old. In with the in new. With the new. But Charlotte, of course, as we said, she's the John Farnham of <laughs> she's the gotta stage. She's got to do one more tour. And she travels back to America for another tour. And, of course, Charlotte being Charlotte, even though she's devoted to Emma. Oh, she's so devoted, but um, she can't keep her eyes off of who is it this time. So... Charlotte meets an 18-year-old actress called Emma Crow. Another Emma. Another Emma. And falls in love with her. Oh. And they begin an affair. Charlotte famously calls her my little lover. So she is half her age at this point. Yeah. So Emma's quite young. Charlotte's in her, what, late 30s, early 40s by now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Before she returns to Italy on this tour of America, she offers to do a farewell performance at the Washington Theatre in the title role of Hamlet. <gasps> That's right. She did the fucking title role. So she plays She played Hamlet. Hamlet. I think that is incredible. And her performance of Hamlet was apparently pretty fucking miraculous. Uh, it I would was... give a lot of money if I could go back in time and see Tell Charlotte me about Cushman it. How fucking great would that be? Because the thing I want to say here about Charlotte Cushman is that Charlotte Cushman was... America's greatest actress of the age. Of her time. She mm. was enormous. She was She's like celebrity. Imagine if you could go and see Meryl Streep play Hamlet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like on the it's on par with the greats. I mean, it's amazing to think that Charlotte Cushman was so enormously famous and yet so forgotten. Yeah. Really. I mean, she's been honored and, you know, people have reclaimed her, but she's not entirely, you know, she's not an a household name. No, definitely it's not. Like it, I didn't it's, really know her until you mentioned her. Exactly. Today. It's like, imagine if everybody just forgot who Marilyn Monroe was. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons why she gets swept under the rug later on is because people start to realise that she was well, a lesbian. This is another thing, because it's interesting that you brought up Marilyn Monroe, because yes, obviously excellent actress in her own right, but she is so famous as for her sexuality, mm, you know, because mm-hmm. of really high profile affairs yeah. that she had. Yeah. Whereas with someone like Charlotte Cushman, she is having very scandalous affairs. Scandalous in the sense of these are completely morally unheard of types yeah. of affairs to have yeah. at the time. But that means that she doesn't have a sexual image as someone sexually available to men. 
Yeah. It's not like she has a famous relationship with a man that men can use as their... Fantasy. That's right. Yeah. And this this is actually a really interesting part about why she was so popular in her time was because in terms of her role in the theatre, the fact that she had no scandalous affairs with any men in the theatre actually served to legitimise theatre more and make theatre sound like a less scandalous place to be. Because it's like, oh, look, this woman's part of the theatre and she's not having, like, scandalous affairs with all the men backstage. That's respectable. Because did know that she was having scandalous affairs with women backstage? Well, this is because also... Nobody actually believed that women could have sexual desire yeah, for, for other, other women. women. Women, not even that they could have sexual desire. Nobody thought that women could have sexual yeah, relationships. That's like, it. The concept Mind of blown. sex between women, like it, it didn't was exist. Impossible. They were like, but there's nothing to put in. They can't else. do that it. Can't be sex. But that was exactly it. So the reason why Charlotte's sexuality so early on wasn't threatening to anybody mm. was because there was no concept that she was actually yeah. capable of acting out and it's amazing on that me, desire. Because it meant that all of these women could legitimately live yes. together and have these communities and yes. have these marriages and meanwhile Go, behind the scenes yeah. just be like, oh, if only you knew. That's <laughs> if only right. you knew what sex between women could be like. It's, it's like, totally under the radar because yeah. the radar is like women are not capable of being Therefore, attracted to no other threat. women. This is not threatening there, at it, all. It can't be a thing. It simply can't be a thing. Yeah. It's, it, it's insane. And so it allows them to live these lives yeah. in communities. And remember how That we, love each other and support each other. And there's no repercussions yeah. for it because nobody thinks that you're actually doing anything yeah. unseemly. Yeah. And remember when we mentioned our good old friend Henry James yeah. and his horrible comments about Charlotte. So there's the term Boston marriage, mm. right, which comes from his novel The Bostonians, which was kind of based on his sister. And his sister had a relationship with another woman. They lived together. Yeah. And so Boston marriages, he didn't coin the term. It was coined later from his novel. But it's basically this idea of two women who reject heterosexual marriage. They shack up together. They pull their money together and they have relationships where they are financially dependent on each other. And they were thought to be sort of just close friendships that were void of any romance. Yeah. I mean, it's like the odd women as well, like George Gissing's odd women. Yeah. I mean, he didn't play into the, the lesbian thing, but it's sort of like, well, all of these women in real life. So many of them, this was a disguise. It was a very excellent disguise. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, is that like some of these relationships, there's suggestions that, yeah, these women were actually just genuinely really, really close platonic Mm. friends. And that was how they just simply fucked the system. But for a lot of women, they they were having genuine romantic, loving relationships. And it was just, everyone was just like, oh, they're just those funny old women that live together. It's yeah. great. And how wonderful that these two women can be such close friends. It's, Isn't that beautiful? They're the picture of innocence. The picture of innocence. <laughs> it's so amazing. As we were saying, she plays Hamlet. It's amazing. There was even a petition put together by some like prominent Washington families to implore her to perform her Hamlet for them in Washington. And she even performed it to Abe Lincoln. She did, didn't she? Yep. Abe Lincoln met her and he said that he hoped to one day see her play Lady Macbeth. Mm. And so, indeed, she did play Lady Macbeth and old Abe saw her. Yeah. She also played in benefit concerts to raise relief money to support wounded and sick Union Mm. Army soldiers because the Civil War, of course, was like raging now and so she's on the right side of history there (laughs) uh looking after the union soldiers (laughs) she goes back and forth between italy and america a few times on her farewell tours this time when she returns to italy emma goes with her Mm -hmm. and so there's no (laughs) so that she can watch her and make sure she doesn't get eyes for any anybody else (laughs) but you know what happens she does no do you know what happens right this is an interesting twist of fate. So do you remember how we mentioned Charlotte adopted her sister Susan's son, Ned? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I forgot about Ned. Yeah. Ned gets eyes for Emma. Oh. And Ned and Emma get married. Oh, really? In oh, my a- God. Yes. <laughs> In April 1861. I mean, they are far more age appropriate. 
Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so in 1861, Ned Cushman oh and Emma God. Crow marry. So she still becomes a Cushman. Yeah, she still becomes a Cushman. And then they all live together in one big they mess. They all live together. In one big hideous mess. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. It's out of control. Oh, my God. Imagine <laughs> marrying your auntie's young lover. lesbian lover. And because Emma Stebbins, Emma Stebbins is still around, right? Oh my god! So Sharla and Emma Stebbins are living together, and then Ned Cushman and Emma Crow start living Sorry, with them. Charlotte and Emma Stebbins get back together. Yeah, they get back together. Yeah, and then okay, all right. That sounds like a fun house. It does sound like a fun house. So again, she goes back to the US, and this time around, she actually does her final, final, proper, final, actual, real life, actual film. on the stage performance final and (laughs) in new york she's so famous and so loved that at the end of this particular final performance there is a parade through the streets for her wow there's fireworks and there's a candlelit procession oh my god through the streets of new york that's incredible because she's so beloved and sadly she's very shortly diagnosed with Breast cancer. Oh. She's in her 50s now Mm. and she's been diagnosed with breast cancer. Emma Stebbins and Charlotte, they go to Scotland to try some pretty cutting edge hydrotherapy treatment for breast cancer. But sadly, it doesn't work. And Stebbins ignores her own sculpting career and devotes her time fully to caring for Charlotte they go back briefly to Rome and then they go back again to the US and that's pretty much where they stay mm. for the rest of Charlotte's life. Charlotte, being Charlotte, despite the fact that she has an illness, despite the fact that she's had a farewell <laughs> tour, she decides she's one more time. One last go at it. One more go. But she doesn't return to the stage as a full dramatic actress because she can't physically do it anymore because now she's ill so she actually resorts to giving dramatic readings of poems and ballads rather than actually performing Mm. on the stage and she continues to do this pretty much until the very end of her life so she continues to do what she can as an actress until in a boston hotel room at the age of 59 in 1876 she passes away mm. from uh, pneumonia, which is from pneumonia, which is a complication yeah. of okay. her breast cancer. It is, yes, yeah. Also, in that time before she passes away, she does return to Boston to have a public school named after her, mm. and it was the first public building in Boston that was named after a woman. Yeah, I know, super cool. There's also a Boston Woman's Heritage Trail mm. in her honor, and many other. Cushman related. That's awesome. Honours. Excellent. Yeah, so she did end up getting uh, some some recognition. Some some recognition. It sounds like she got a lot. Yeah, quite a lot of recognition. But as we were saying before, I guess I think what happened was in her later life, towards sort of the start of the 20th century, the idea that women could actually be lovers was starting, you know. This idea of sex was changing. This idea of what kind of relationships women could have was changing. And people were starting to think, oh, Oh. shit, hang on, we've missed something. Yeah, yeah. Turns out women have been having sex with each other this whole time. Yeah. and so I thought. So I think that this kind of feeds into the fact that her reputation or her as a – she starts to kind of get hidden and tucked away now because people start to think, oh, hang on, Mm. this is a little bit embarrassing yeah. That this woman got away with this for the whole career. So long. And I think that this is why she ends up being somebody who is not as well known as other figures because there was actually sort of like a, a revisionist movement to pretty much, you know, kind of cover over most of her fame Gosh. and most of her life. That's how many revisionist movements to bring them back again. Yeah, but she has been brought back. She's been brought back in um, a lot of different ways and she has been acknowledged and celebrated in a lot of different ways. And she really was a completely groundbreaking figure in terms of what actresses could do on the stage, but also in terms of the way she lived her personal life as well. She was a celebrity, man. She was celebrity culture. This was her. She was Ah, enormous. She was huge. Definitely. That's awesome. She's the type of, again, like I said before, I, I would love to be able to 
go back in time and see what a woman like that on the stage looks like. Yeah. You know, like imagine that kind of a performance. Be amazing yeah. to get in the old time machine and go back and see her. Yeah, so she definitely cool. had recognition in yeah. her lifetime for her art and for her acting. Excellent. That's awesome. I th- I'm so glad that we could provide some revisionist space for Charlotte Cushman's yeah. story to be told once again. Absolutely. So that brings us to the end of Charlotte Cushman's story. But it doesn't have to be the end for you at home. If you want to, you can Google her. Google her. Find out more things. Look at pictures of her. <laughs> and there's plenty of pictures of her online, actually, yeah. to see what she um, looked like. And in many of her roles as well, dressed up in costume. So that brings us to the end of another episode. If you like the podcast, there are, of course, many different ways that you can support us. You can follow us on Twitter at DeviantWomen or on Facebook. Or on iTunes or Stitcher or your podcasting platform of choice. So subscribe and leave us a review if you like the podcast and, of course, Remember to tell your friends. And if you leave a review, who knows? Again, in the future, we might do a, another competition and you could be lucky like Sophie555555. Yes, you could. You never know. You never know your luck. You never know your luck. And of course, if you really want to support us, show your love for us, you can find us on Patreon. We so love our Patreon supporters and it means the world to us that people are willing to support the podcast in that way. That's how we bring this podcast to you it's how we bring it to life that's right and our patreon supporters can expect some more exciting patreon content coming up very soon but if you don't want to commit all the way to patreon but you still want to support us in some way you can find our store on etsy and you can buy some merch and you can find all of the links to these things on our wordpress site (laughs) which is deviantwomenpodcast.com Great. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thank you for joining us. Do we have any idea where we're going to be next time, Lauren? No. We're going back further in history next time. Are we? We're going to go back, back into maybe some, a little bit of some mythological times. Oh, I love mythological times. Let's do that. Going to get far away from Victoriana for a little bit. Yeah. Good. Let's do it. Excellent. So thank you as always to India Hui for the music. And to Brendan Davies for the sound. And we'll see you guys next time. See you later. Bye.